So we are almost done with chapter 9 of the book of Romans. We will press on and keep going through the exposition of, of the book of Romans. We will come to um, a passage that is relatively long. We will extract the main ideas from there. And I will pick up from verse 22, which is the last verse that Brother James preached on last time. So if you are able to stand, please do so for the reading of God's word. And I encourage everyone, although we do put the scriptures up in the screen, uh, your Bible is your sword. I encourage all attendees to please congregate with your sword in hand so that you can follow along. Romans 9, starting in verse 22. The inerrant, infallible, powerful word of God reads <clears throat> as follows. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, as and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not led us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word, which speaks to us directly about who you are, about your decrees, about your character. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit may give us understanding of your attributes, as we will see this morning. For we are learning how you are holy, just, merciful, patient, loving. These are only some of your perfections. May your Holy Spirit also empower us to be doers and not only hearers of what we learn. We ask this according to your will and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I have titled today's sermon, The Riches of God's Glory. The riches of God's glory. In the past, when we have approached the subject of God's glory, I've attempted to do a quick recap of what the word glory means when it is used in Scripture, specifically when it is used about God. In the Old Testament, when we talk about God's glory, the word there is kavod. And what it implies is a particular weight. The weight of someone's presence. An example would be, let's say at our homes where those of us that have kids, the child will typically know who carries more weight in authority, the mom or the dad, right? 
if the kids are slacking off and not listening because mom is the only one around, uh, the moment I step into the room, it seems that my kids fall in line right away because they know there's a certain presence in the room now when the one they know has authority over them steps in. Not that their mother doesn't, but they perhaps may overlook it. That weight of authority. Another example would be when, if anyone here has attended a court proceeding, everybody's waiting. When the judge gets there, what is it? I'll rise. You are showing the honor that is due to the presence of the judge. And if you're there as the accused, you're there, you better show respect. You're going to get up. And if you're there as a plaintiff, you want the judge to see your case and show you favor. So in either case, there's this weight that someone's presence brings into the room. In the New Testament, doxa is a, sim is a very similar concept. It's a state of high honor, of praise, of brightness, of greatness. And we see that God's glory has been displayed to us, has been exposed to us. When God's glory is shown to us, for we know that even creation attests to the glory of God by the mere sense that creation didn't create itself. It had a creator. When we realize that, as Romans chapter 1 speaks of, we are left without an excuse and we are required a response. When the glory of God is therefore shown to us, the proper response from the creation is to turn in worship of God. God's glory demands our worship. Now, for the non-Christian, God's glory in creation should be alone by itself, worthy of turning into repentance and worship of God. But God's glory can be seen when as unbelievers we realize that we are sinners, that we need a Savior, and that God has sent His Son to die for us so that we may be saved. More specifically, once we are Christians, for the professing Christians, being aware of God's glory, once we are introduced into the kingdom of God, God's glory requires of us both thanksgiving and obedience. If you are a believer today, God, because of his glory and his authority, requires of you thanksgiving and obedience. <clears throat> I recently mentioned to some of you that I came across a, a short clip of an evangelist that I admire, Paul Washer. And he was given a warning. The warning went something like this. He says, do not fall in the trap of boasting that you attend a Bible-believing church. Do not fall in the trap of boasting that at your church we teach correct doctrine. That is good. It's good that we do and that you come here for those that are watching as well. But his question is, 
Great, you attend a biblical church. But are you a biblical man? And I ask all of us here, are you a biblical man? Are you a biblical woman? How does your life choices match what you claim to believe in a church that teaches sound doctrine? Very often, Christians live in a lukewarm disobedience because, not only because we love our sin, but because we do not grasp the majesty of God's glory, the immense weight of the glory of God that has been revealed to us. We give it very little weight. And because of that, we have lukewarm thanksgiving and we have lukewarm obedience to God's demands. So with that short introduction, then, what is Paul's main point in the text that we're reading today? It is as follows. All salvation is of God. All salvation is of God. And all of glory is of God. Today we're going to explore four different ways in which God's glory is displayed and what a response should be. First one up, God's glory is shown in his wrath. God's glory is shown in his wrath. Romans 9.22 What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now this passage is in the context of Paul teaching the Roman church about God's sovereign plan of salvation. God calls the shots. God elects. God justifies. God grants repentance. And Paul anticipates the very question that was asked in the passage before this, which is, well, if that's the case, then how can anyone resist God's will? And typically, someone will misuse this doctrine to erroneously imply that, therefore, if I'm not a Christian, it's really not my fault because God didn't elect me. Or I'm just a vessel prepared for destruction, so how can I be faulted? That, my friends, my brothers and sisters, is an incorrect conclusion. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. So much so that no one gets to call the shots whether they are themselves declaring as a vessel of honor or dishonor. That is not our call. We cannot self-declare to be a vessel of honor or dishonor. God gets to call that shot. Now, in this verse, Paul brings up the fact of God's divine wrath. God's wrath. Now, someone may say, well, can we just talk about God's love? Right? We hear a lot about God's love. I mean, even, even in, in lukewarm Christianity and even in, in the worldly culture that we live. If you share a quote about God's love, more often than not, you, you won't experience any feedback, any uh, bad feedback or any pushback. But if you share something talking about God's wrath and how God will judge, that's when all hell breaks loose. God's wrath. That's the first verse that's before us today. Now, why could it be that wrath has a bad connotation because it does. Wrath has a bad connotation. 
I would say this. The reason why we often think of wrath as bad is because we are familiar with the sinful wrath of men. The sinful wrath of men. Let me put it this way. The last time that I snapped, the last time that you snapped, I could probably bet that it was unrighteous and that it was in sin. Let us take a quick look at how the wrath of men expresses itself in sinful anger and how God denounces that. I have two verses for that. First, James 1 verse 20, it says, The anger of men, meaning the wrath of men, does not, my brothers and sisters, please memorize this, meditate it, think it. The wrath of men, the anger of men, that means you, that means me. It will not produce the righteousness of God, period. That's what God says. Secondly, Proverbs 29, 11. It says, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Okay? What happens when we vent our anger, our unrighteous wrath? The Bible says, God says, that we are fools. By doing such venting, we are not going to do anything righteous. Our anger will not produce the righteousness of God. In a nutshell, this is what the Bible tells us about the wrath of men expressed sinfully. Okay? The wrath of men. We are warned not to go there. We are warned to repent from such anger. Now, is there wrath that is righteous? There is. And actually, the Bible tells us to be angry and not sin. The Bible does tell us that. There is such anger that is righteous. And unless we are in the spirit, we will not be able to have righteous anger, even if we are in the right. That's very different. Brothers and sisters, notice this. You can be in the right, and you can still be sinful in the way you express your displeasure or your anger. Righteousness of man will never produce the righteousness of God. I mean, the anger of man will never produce the righteousness of God. But there is a way that righteous wrath can be expressed. Now, that wrath is perfectly, perfectly seen when God expresses and executes his wrath. As a matter of fact, God shows his glory. God shows his righteousness when he executes wrath on the guilty. Nahum chapter 1 verse 3 says the following. The Lord, that is Yahweh, is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. By no means will God let the wicked sinners go and give them a free pass. It's never going to happen. As a matter of fact, this is the key message of the, of the gospel that says, repent and be saved. And when evangelizing, Someone who's actually listening has asked before, but wait a minute, say from what? 
Great question. Great question. Romans 5.9 says the following. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, meaning the blood of Jesus, much more shall we be saved by him, by Jesus, from the wrath of God. We are saved. We need saving from the wrath of God. This happens by faith in Christ, faith in his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, which brings about in a genuine heart, in a genuine repentance, a changed life, a changed character. And that spares us, that faith in Christ saves us from the righteous wrath of God that would otherwise would be coming and crush us. Now, when does that happen? When are we saved? Well, we say when we declare faith, but when are we actually spared of that event in time of being condemned otherwise? Brother Johnny actually pulled this verse in Sunday school today, Hebrews 9.27. And just as it is appointed for men to die, how many times? Once. And after that comes judgment. That's when. When that judgment comes, you either pay with your own soul or the righteousness of Christ covers you from God's wrath. So then God's wrath is experienced by all those who reject God's plan of salvation. In that judgment, God's glory is in full display. Notice that the verse says that God endured with much patience vessels of wrath. That too illustrates God's glory in his mercy. Instead of wiping out those that hate him, those that will not repent, God says that he endures with patience. The late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones quotes, or I have a quote from him about that verse. I'll quote it for you here. It says the following. God, whose whole being urges him to punish sin, held back that urge, as it were, in order that he might show this long-suffering, this patience with sinful men, so that his first reason for enduring with much long-suffering, the evil that is in the world, and he is doing that with the whole of humanity until this very present hour, unquote. So what is that telling us? That God actually has been merciful even to the vessels of wrath because he should have wiped them out right away because he's so holy and yet he endured with patience. Thanks be to God, my brothers and sisters, that God showed mercy and patience and not execute his wrath right away. Otherwise, you and I would have been wiped out too. Let us look at the second way that God shows his glory. God shows his glory when his mercy is shown. Romans 9.23 In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before him for glory. So we not only see God's glory in judgment when he executes 
what the guilty have coming to them. But we see even more the riches of God's glory in the vessels of mercy. That is, in those peoples of every tribe, every tongue, every nation that he chose to save. This was a deliberate act on behalf of God. This was not a on-the-go plan, as it were. It says that he prepared these vessels of mercy beforehand. That is, before the foundations of the earth. So in God's saving mercy, his glory is shown through his love, grace, faithfulness, power, justice, and through his holiness. Let us take a quick look at one verse that demonstrates such God's attributes, God's per perfections. Romans 5.8, it says, and we all should know this by memory, by the way, my brothers and sisters, says, but God shows, what? His love for us, in that we will still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? We can see the riches of God's glory in this verse. First, God's love. Right? We talk about God's wrath. Yes, God is also love. And that is not a foolish love that loves blindly. It is not an earned love. No. God's love is directed towards those who he knows are wicked. He knows they're wicked. And yet chooses to redeem them. God's love. Then we see God's grace. It says, while we were yet sinners. Meaning, undeserving. Undeserving from God's favor. While we were still offending him. And then we see God's power in the fact that Christ died for us. Can we fail to see God's glory in his infinite wisdom of entering his own creation to accomplish the perfect rescue mission for sinners by dying on the cross? Jesus, God in flesh, accomplishing that, being sent by the Father. My brothers and sisters, that is power. God's power. Then we see God's justice. Jesus did not come as a worthy king to defeat his enemies physically, at least not the first time. But he came as a humble servant. God's justice was served. God did not give a pass to sin, but rather put Jesus on the cross to die for the sins of his elect. Jesus died for our sins. God's justice was satisfied, as the hymn says. And then we see God's faithfulness in that verse. God assured his people that he would send a savior from the moment that the fall happened back in Genesis. This has actually been the main, the main theme of this chapter, that through the seed of Abraham, God chose a specific bloodline to bring Messiah, that is, the anointed one, the savior, Jesus, God's faithfulness, God's justice, God's power, God's grace, God's love. In these, only to mention a few of his attributes and his perfections, God has displayed his glory in saving sinners in his mercy. So we saw in his wrath, in his mercy. Now thirdly, 
God's glory is shown by the people he chose for himself. Who are the people that God prepared beforehand for his mercy and to show them favor? Think about a coach that is going to pick a team for whatever your favorite sport is. And think that that coach goes and scouts and picks the best players. You could say, well, that's a pretty smart coach, right? Well, God does the exact opposite. God chooses the worst of the worst in order to have a winning team. Why? For his glory, so that no one may boast and say, well, of course, God has a winning team. He picked me. <laughs> yeah, right. Never. But while we were sinners, not deserving, God basically chooses the outcast as his winning team, and he wins. So that who gets the glory? Not the players, but him, the one that chose. So who did he choose? Right here, Romans 9, 24 to 26. It says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. See that? This is, this is a love language that the scripture talks about when it talks about the people of God as a bride, a woman that was rejected, a woman that would have no no one would have ever looked at her. Outcast. God says, that's who I want. That's who shall be my bride. It says, us whom he has called. This speaks of the divine election. Election and calling can be seen as the cause and effect of God calling the saints, as John Gill explains in his commentary. God calling people to salvation then, notice here Paul says, us. Paul is including himself with the people he's writing to, which is a mixture of Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church. In both cases, get this, neither the Jew nor the Gentile had an earned right to be called to salvation. They were both called only by God's grace. In this portion of scripture where it says, God says in Hosea, let us be reminded that if the prophet spoke it, we are told that God said it. God speaks when his prophet speaks. And there, if we're told of God adopting a people that were not his people, right? It says, people that were not my people, I will call my people. Who was not beloved, I will call beloved. This talks about someone who was not in favor and then came to be shown favor. Someone who did not belong and came to belong. Someone who was an orphan and then became adopted. 
This should remind us where it says that those that were not my people, her who was not beloved, that no one is born saved. God has to act. There's no such thing as I've been a Christian since I was born. No such thing. God has to act and give us a new nature. As Ezekiel eleven nineteen says. And I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh. And give them a heart of flesh. It's a reminder that no one is born saved. No one is born with favor from God. God has to act in order to give us that new heart. Now, in addition, that passage cited from Hosea chapter 2 and then chapter 1. Those people that are rejected, not only are they outcasts, they're actually in sin. So they're not victims. Okay, they're in sin. They're in idolatry with the Baals. They are in constant conflict. And God promises that he will adopt them and give them peace. Although they deserve rejection, he promises that he'll accept them. Although they deserve the penalty of their rebellion, which is God's wrath, God specifically said he will redeem them and they will save them from destruction. My brothers and sisters, just as God promised that in the book of Hosea, and now Paul is bringing it up here, may we not forget that the same is true of us. We were not born Christians. We were not born loving God. We were once not his people. We too were once far off from God. If we have a true profession of faith today, it is only because God has called you out of death into life, out of darkness into light. God chooses those that are least likely to be thought of as worthy by human wisdom or by human standards, so that he may bring to shame the wisdom of the world. 1 Corinthians 1.27, it says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. In this, my brothers and sisters, can we not see that God absolutely shows his glory by who he chooses? The glory is all his by choosing and saving those, those of us that would otherwise be for sure lost. Nobody would have picked me. Nobody would have picked you. But God said, yes, so you're a good candidate. Come on. Can you imagine that? God shows his glory through those who he chooses. Fourthly, God, God shows his glory by his faithfulness. That means by keeping his remnant. Romans 9, 29 to 20, 27 to 29 reads, In Isaiah, <coughs> Christ said concerning Israel, the, the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left his offspring, we would have been like Sodom 
and become like Gomorrah. So here Paul quotes from chapter 10 of Isaiah. And he expresses a cry of lament, stating that only a remnant of Israel will be saved. And Isaiah being inspired by the Holy Spirit, he knows that that's true. This is what God is instructing him to write. Only a remnant, not all of Israel will be saved. And this is actually similar to the lament that Paul expresses in this chapter, at the beginning of this chapter, in the beginning of chapter 10 of Romans. It is as follows. Let's look at it real quick. Romans 9, chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, it says, That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is Paul's cry of lament that he is in anguish that his Jewish brothers and sisters are not saved. Right? Similar to how Isaiah, he's acknowledging that not all of Israel will be saved. And then we're going to look here in a couple of weeks, Romans 10, 1, it says, again, Paul, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jewish people, is that they may be saved. Because Paul knows that by and large, the Jewish nation is lost. This is a reminder for us, my brothers and sisters. We should have sorrow for our kinsmen, our family, our loved ones that are not saved. And Paul knows, as he just quoted from Isaiah, and as he's lamenting in the book of Romans, that many, most of his kinsmen are not going to be saved. Yet, what does he say? My heart's desire and prayer to God. Paul didn't say, well, it's done. You know, those people are going to hell. Oh, well, I tried. No. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's praying for them. He's evangelizing to them. He is persuading them into believing the gospel. So that it's not ever lose hope that someone we know is too far off from God. As a matter of fact, they may be the perfect candidate because those are the people that God reaches. So then, what can we say about God's dealing with Israel here then? Has God been in any way unfair to Israel because only a remnant of them will be saved? I'll give you two reasons why not. <clears throat> First, no. It is not unfair. As a matter of fact, as the chosen people of God, we already saw in the book of Romans that they were given special privileges. They kept their or the oracles of God. They kept the word of God. They knew the loss of God. So they had a, a head start, if you will, than the rest of the Gentiles, of the Gentile world. So God was actually more favorable to them than others, rather than unfair. Secondly, no, it is not unfair to Israel that only a remnant will be saved, because true Israel is actually spiritual Israel. It's not the land of Israel, not the nation of Israel. So in this verse here, we should be reminded that not all of Israel's nation will be part of the true Israel of whom the true promises of God are applicable. So then we see God's glory in that also, that instead of God ditching Israel altogether, he kept the remnant. God kept his promise. God 
was faithful to keep his people. Now it says here that God is carrying out his sentence. This talks about God carrying out his decree, what will take place. And the fact that not all Israel will be saved is part of God's judgment. Remember, we talk about both God's judgment, God's mercy. And there's much grace, not only to Israel, but also to the Gentiles that will be redeemed and that some of Israel will be saved. God shows his grace to both, not only the nation of Israel, but to the Gentiles that were grafted in. Now, lastly, how can we not see God's glory in his faithfulness to his people as we see in verse 29? I have it here, Romans 9, 29. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not let us offspring, left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let us consider this verse just for a second here. The Lord of hosts. This is a reminder of the majesty of God. Again, God's glory. God has at this very moment the host of heaven bowing down to him in worship to him. At this very instant, the entire creation attests to the glory of its maker. That God, he's the one who shows his faithfulness to keep his promises, the Lord of hosts, in keeping his people. Otherwise, had it not been for the grace of the Lord of hosts, all of us, but specifically in this verse, the people of Israel would all have been wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah were. And yet, the Lord of hosts prepared and left a remnant of Israel and didn't let them all go astray. So then how can we say that we see God's faithfulness in our very day, in our very life today? Well, does God show his faithfulness to us today? My brothers and sisters, he sure does. For God gives us the strength to will and to do what he requires of us in obedience. God gives us the perseverance in our daily walk in the midst of trials. And the key here is that you are not alone in your daily walk as a child of God. Perhaps you may feel like it when you're thinking of how am I going to resolve this? You know, it's late at night and like, how am I, this is just coming, crashing down on me. There's no way. And you may think, well, I need real solutions. How is this going to help me? My brothers, this is, this is real solutions. Where else are you going to turn? Turn to Christ. You are not alone in your walk. God is with you. Your church is with you. God is faithful to keep you and to complete the good work that he has started in you. And in that, God shows his glory in that he keeps his faithfulness in those that belong to him. Let us consider some points of final application here. What can we consider? First, can we conceive of a God 
without judgment? The world has. Unfortunately, maybe even a God without judgment who is a false God has creeped in into some churches. Put it this way. As we talk and consider God's wrath, let's put a, an example we could relate to. Let's say that, God forbid, someone did a horrible crime to you, your family. And as this person gets caught and you are about to witness a verdict, the judge, out of a whim, lets the perpetrator go. What would your reaction be? Not only that, but then as you start to look into what else this judge has done in the unrighteous verdict that he gave of letting the perpetrator against your family go, you start to find out that this is not the first time. This judge actually has done that previously and has a history of letting the guilty criminals go free. Is that a righteous judge? I wouldn't want that judge presiding over my case because that judge has nothing to pay the damages that have been done. Well, be reminded of this, my brothers and sisters, we have a righteous judge. We have God Almighty who is just. And God did not spare his own son in order to make a way possible for the salvation of sinners. He does not spare Jesus. This should make us think of his glory in judgment of sin. And if God did not spare his own son and you do not have the righteousness of Christ with you, what makes you think he's going to spare you? Please consider this. God will not hold the guilty blameless. A God without judgment is a false God. Secondly, our sin deserves God's wrath. My sin deserves God's wrath. Your sin deserves God's wrath. This should come down crushing you the day of judgment, the day of your physical death. Or that judgment has already crushed Jesus in the cross. Instead of you, Jesus has taken that sin, that punishment of that sin on your behalf. Because our sin deserves God's wrath. How has your sin been dealt with? Are you waiting to be judged for it? Or has Jesus paid for it? Which leads us to the last consideration. Consider then God's glory. My brothers and sisters, we are easy to forget. We become busy with our daily tasks. You are likely not aware of the weight of God's glory. Think of your place of work. Think of someone you admire, you respect. If that person comes in the room, you're going to give them your attention. You're going to straighten up. Multiply that by infinity, my brothers and sisters. That is God's weight, God's glory that should be upon our lives daily. 
Consider his glory and fall in his mercy. So that when he forgives you, his glory will be shown by giving you mercy. It may not be, may not be the case that God's glory is shown by judging you. Let us turn to his mercy. For we have a God who will turn no one away that comes to him with a contrite heart and spirit. And in that, my brothers and sisters, let us rejoice. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about your righteous verdicts in executing your wrath, let us be amazed at the weight of your glory. And even more so, Lord, let us be amazed at the weight of your glory, of the riches of your glory that you have extended in your son, Jesus Christ, that we may repent and believe in him so that his perfection, his righteousness can be applied to us. Lord, let us remember that our foolish anger will never, never Give us your righteousness. Let us repent. And as we repent and turn to you, Lord, remind us and give us the peace of the assurance that comes that him who, tr who turns and trusts in Christ will never be put to shame. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.